One cannot help but be uplifted and inspired just to worship in this historic tabernacle and to listen to this glorious choir. It's been said that when Evan Stevens conducted the Tabernacle Choir, he was impressed one day with a message delivered by the late President Joseph F. Smith directed to the topic, The Faith of Latter-day Saint Youth. After the session, Professor Stevens strolled alone up City Creek Canyon to the north, pondering the President's words. Suddenly, the inspiration of heaven came upon him. And while seated on a large rock, which stood firm against the pressures of the waters of City Creek, he took a pencil in hand and wrote these words, Shall the youth of Zion falter in defending truth and right, while the enemy assaileth? Shall they shrink or shun the fight? No, true to the faith that their parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished, to God's command, soul, heart, and hand, faithful and true, they will ever stand. In that early day, I'm confident that youth had difficult problems to solve and vexing challenges to meet. Youth has never been a time of ease or of freedom from perplexing questions. It was not so then, and it surely isn't so today. In fact, with the passage of time, it appears that the problems of youth expand in scope. Accounts of theft, violence, drug abuse, pornography, blare from the nation's television screens and peer from the pages of many daily newspapers. Unfortunately, these assumptions, these accounts, have the tendency to cause world opinion to make declarations such as, this is the worst generation yet, youth are not as good as yesteryear. How unfortunate are such conclusions, how grossly unfair. True. Today is a new day, a day with new trials, new temptations, new troubles. But hundreds of thousands of Latter-day Saint youth live worthily and serve nobly, true to the faith, just as did their counterparts of an earlier generation. Because the difference between truth and error is so stark, exceptions to prevailing trends are noticed and appreciated by God-fearing people everywhere. Let me share with you, for example, a letter which one resident from the state of Minnesota wrote to the administration at Brigham Young University. He said, Beginning December 22nd, I made a bus trip from southern Minnesota to Florida via Des Moines and Chicago and points south. There was a large group of young men and women traveling the approximately same route from Des Moines. These fine young people were students from Brigham Young University going home for the holidays. They were all very polite, well-behaved, articulate young men and women. It was a pleasure to travel with them, to know them, 
and it gave me a new hope for the future. I realized that the university cannot do this. Young men and women of their caliber are the product of fine homes. The credit is due the parents. I cannot reach the parents, so my appreciation must go to the school. Such letters are not a rarity, but they are frequently received, for which we are very grateful. Latter-day Saint students are a beautiful example of faith in action. Another group which arouses interest and connotes faith is that veritable army of full-time missionaries, 26,600 strong, serving throughout the world. These young men and young women have prepared for a long time for that missionary call. And when the call is about to come, fathers become a little justifiably proud, and mothers, oh, they become a little anxious. Well do I remember being present one day when we reviewed a missionary recommendation form on which the bishop had written, This young man is outstanding. He was the president of his Aaronic priesthood quorums. He was an Eagle Scout. He was the president of his high school class. He was the valedictorian. He lettered in track and in football. He, without a doubt, is the finest missionary candidate I have ever recommended. And then he wrote, I am proud to be his father. <laughs> Generally, the bishops and stake presidents write, John is an outstanding young man. He has prepared himself for his mission spiritually, physically, economically. He will serve gladly and well wherever he's called. I was seated with President Spencer W. Kimball on one occasion when he was signing the formal letters of call to full-time missionaries. Suddenly, he came upon the call of his own grandson, read it carefully, signed his name as the president, and then with his pen in hand wrote this personal note. I'm proud of you. Love, Grandpa. <laughs> when that missionary call is received, the college textbook is closed. The scriptures are opened. Left behind are family, friends, and frequently a certain friend. <laughs> Dating, driving, dancing, the three Ds, <laughs> are exchanged for the three Ts. Tracting, teaching, and testifying. Let's examine a few missionary profiles to see if we might better answer that question, shall the youth of Zion falter? For profile number one, I turn to Jose Garcia from Old Mexico. Born in poverty, nurtured in faith, he prepared for his call. His bishop wrote on the recommendation form, Brother Garcia will serve at great sacrifice to his family. He has been the principal means of economic support of the family. He has but one possession, a treasured stamp collection, which he is willing to sell if necessary to help finance his mission. 
President Kimball listened attentively as this information was read and then responded, Have him sell his stamp collection. The sacrifice will be to him an eternal blessing. And then with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face, this loving prophet said, Every week we receive hundreds of letters here at church headquarters from all over the world. See that we save the stamps from those envelopes and give them to Brother Garcia at the conclusion of his mission. Without a doubt, he'll have the finest stamp collection of any young man in all of Mexico. There just seemed to echo in my soul from another time and from another place the words of the Master. And he looked up and beheld the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he beheld also a poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, This poor widow hath cast in more than they all, for all of they did cast in of their abundance. But this widow, of her want, did cast in all that she had, even all of her living. For a second profile, journey with me to the Language Training Center at Brigham Young University. There we had a young man feverishly learning German prior to his departure for the Germany Munich mission. Every day when he would open his German grammar text, he would notice with interest and concern and curiosity a picture on the front cover. It depicted a very, very ancient and quaint house in Rothenburg, Germany. One day he said to himself, Rothenburg, why, that's in my mission. One day I'm going to go to Rothenburg and teach the truth to whomsoever lives within that house. And he did. The result was the conversion and the baptism of Sister Helma Hahn. Today, thousands of people flock to her little house, one of the most photographed objects in all of Germany, and not one leaves her presence without learning of the joy which the blessings of the gospel have brought to her. That young missionary took literally the divine injunction, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. For a third profile, I refer to a young missionary by the name of Mark Skidmore. When he received his call to the Norway Oslo mission, he knew not one word of Norwegian. Yet he realized to be effective on his mission, he needed proficiency in the language. He made a vow to himself that he would not again speak English, his native tongue, until he had first met and taught and baptized a Norwegian family. He prayed, he plotted, he pleaded, he worked, and after the trial of his faith came the desired blessing. He found, he taught, 
he baptized a choice family in Norway. Then, for the first time in six months, he spoke in English. I was with him that week. His attitude was one of thanksgiving, humility. As I looked at him, I thought of the words of that courageous Captain Moroni, who declared, I seek not for power, I seek not for the honor of the world, but for the glory of my God. For a final profile, I turned to a mother, the mother of a missionary in Star Valley, Wyoming. Star Valley is a harsh climate. The summers are brief and warm. The winters are long and very cold. A young missionary son, as he prepared for his mission, knew upon whom the burden of the farm would fall. His father was ill and limited. To mother would come the task of caring for the farm, milking twice daily the small dairy herd which sustained the family. I was a mission president at that time, and all of us were called to Salt Lake City to attend a seminar, and one evening of the seminar was devoted to meeting the parents of our then-serving missionaries. Some of the parents were articulate, affluent, well-groomed. They had a lot of faith. Other parents were modest in their attire, shy, very retiring. They, too, had faith. But of all the parents with whom I met that night, the one best remembered was the mother from Star Valley, Wyoming. When she took my hand in hers, I felt the calluses that spoke of the physical, manual labor that she performed each day. Apologetically, she attempted to excuse her rough hands and her wind-whipped face. And then she leaned over and kissed my cheek and whispered, Tell our son Spencer that we love him, that we pray for him every morning and every night. Until that time, I had never seen an angel. I had never heard an angel's voice. But never again could I make that statement for this angel mother, who with that same hand, in the hand of God, had walked bravely down into the valley of the shadow of death that she might bring to life her missionary son, had indelibly impressed my life. Nurtured by such mothers, missionaries matched the description of Helaman's throng, and they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and for strength and activity. But this was not all. They were true at all times to whatsoever thing they were entrusted. They were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before Him. Such profiles teach truth. They instill confidence. They promote faith. They testify of goodness. They answer the question, 
Shall the youth of Zion falter in defending truth and right while the enemy assaileth? Will they shrink or shun the fight? No. True to the faith that their parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished, to God's command, soul, heart, and hand, faithful and true, they will ever stand. My sincere prayer is that we will stand with the youth of Zion, true to the faith, for which I pray in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. I shall speak of one of the greatest gifts ever received by mortal man. It is a superlative spiritual endowment, which in its very nature sets the Latter-day Saints apart from the world and makes them a peculiar people. It is a gift which the Lord always gives to his people, which identifies them as the chosen of God and without which nothing else of a religious nature has any especial value or enduring worth. I shall speak of revelation, of the opening of the heavens, of revelation as it is given to prophets and apostles for the guidance of the Church and the world, and also of revelation to the saints in general for their own guidance and that of their families. I have sought diligently for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in preparing these words, and now pray sincerely and devoutly that your hearts may be open as you hear them, that your bosoms will burn with living fire, and that you will know by the power of the Holy Spirit that the doctrines taught and the witness born are true. How does a gracious God commune with his children on earth? How can those of us on earth whose experiences are bounded by time and space and the frailties of the flesh comprehend that which is infinite and eternal? By what means can mortal eyes see within the veil or the ears of earth hear the voices of eternity? It is truly a strange thing for, a prophets, for prophets to speak of future events as though they were present before their Syric eyes. It is truly a wondrous thing for earthbound eyes to pierce the fogs and darkness of our planet and see within the gates of heaven. It is marvelous almost beyond belief that mere mortals can begin to comprehend him who is eternal, can know of a surety of things past, present, and future, and can have the assurance of an eternal inheritance with immortal beings who dwell in everlasting glory. But strange are not, so it is. He who is eternal has provided a way. A gracious and loving Father has ordained the laws by obedience to which we may learn his ways and know his will. Those who believe in Christ as he is revealed by the apostles and prophets of their day, 
those who forsake the world and repent of all their sins, those who covenant with the Lord in the waters of baptism to love and serve him all their days, these are the ones who receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This gift is the right to the constant companionship of that member of the Godhead based on faithfulness. This gift is the right to receive revelation from the Holy Spirit. No man can receive the Holy Ghost without receiving revelations, the prophet said, for the Holy Ghost is a revelator. Revelations come in many ways, but they are always manifest by the power of the Holy Ghost. When men are quickened by the power of the Spirit, then the Lord can reveal his truths to them in whatever way he chooses. The Father and the Son rent the heavens and came down to Joseph Smith in the spring of 1820 to usher in the dispensation of the fullness of times. From these two glorious personages, he then received the promise that if he remained true and faithful, he would be the instrument in their hands of restoring the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The Lord Jehovah the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Omnipotent, who was born of Mary in Bethlehem of Judea, appeared in glory to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on the third day of April in 1836 in the Kirtland Temple. His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. I will manifest myself to my people in mercy. Yea, I will appear unto my servants, and speak unto them with mine own voice, if my people keep my commandments. Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and divers angels came, all declaring their dispensation, their rights, their keys, their honors, their majesty and glory, and the power of their priesthood. Moses returned to bring the keys of the gathering of Israel, Elias came to restore the gospel of Abraham and promise mortal men once again that in them and in their seed all generations might be blessed. And Elijah came to confer the sealing power so that once again legal administrators might have power to bind on earth and have their acts sealed everlastingly in the heavens. Peter, James, and John restored the keys of the kingdom of God and brought back again the apostolic commission to preach the gospel to all nations and to every creature. Moroni came to restore the Book of Mormon and John the Baptist to bring again the Aaronic priesthood with all its keys and powers. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon on February 16, 1832, at Hiram, Ohio, saw in vision the kingdoms of glory in the eternal world, 
and received such an outpouring of grace and truth as has seldom come to mortal man. The voice of God, speaking audibly after the manner of our language, and also speaking by the power of the Spirit in the minds of men, has been heard over and over again in our day. Times without number, faithful members of the Lord's Church have labored and struggled with near unsolvable problems, have reached what seemed to them to be proper solutions, and have then received a spiritual confirmation certifying to the truth and verity of their decisions. We cannot speak of revelation without bearing testimony of the great and wondrous outpouring of divine knowledge that came to President Spencer W. Kimball, setting forth that the priesthood and all of the blessings and obligations of the gospel should now be offered to those of all nations, races, and colors. Truly, the Holy Ghost is a revelator. He speaks, and his voice is the voice of the Lord. He is Christ's minister, his agent, his representative. He says what the Lord Jesus would say if he were personally present. Speaking unto all those who are ordained unto his priesthood, the Lord says, And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Truly, this is that promised day, when every man might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. If all the Latter-day Saints lived as they should, then Moses' petition would be granted, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. This is the promised day, when God shall give unto us knowledge by his Holy Spirit, when, uh, when, by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost, we shall gain knowledge that has not been revealed since the world was until now. This is the day of which Joseph Smith said, God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve. And even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. And we look forward to that glorious millennial day when they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. But even now, There is no end to the revelations we may receive. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. To the prophets, seers, and revelators, he will manifest his mind and his will concerning the church and the world. To the presiding officers in the stakes and wards and quorums, he will reveal what should be for those organizations. 
to fathers and mothers and children, he will reveal great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, to guide them along the way to perfection. It is his will that we gain testimonies, that we seek revelation, that we covet to prophesy, that we desire spiritual gifts, and that we seek the face of the Lord. The Lord wants all his children to gain light and truth and knowledge from on high. It is his will that we pierce the veil and rend the heavens and see the visions of eternity. By his own mouth, he has given us this promise. It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. Such is his promise to us here and now, while we yet dwell as mortals in a world of sorrow and sin. It is our privilege even now, the privilege of all who hold the holy priesthood, if we will strip ourselves from jealousies and fears and humble ourselves before him as he has said, to have the veil rent and see him and know that he is. To carnal men and those even among us whose souls are not attuned to the infinite, these promises may seem as the gibberish of alien tongues. But to those whose souls are afire with the light of heaven, they will be as a bush that burns and is not consumed. As Paul, our fellow apostle and witness of that same Lord whose servants we are, expressed it, The things of God knoweth no man, except he has the Spirit of God. Now may I bear a solemn witness, one born of the Spirit, that these doctrines are true, that the Lord God is raining down righteousness upon his people, and that he will continue to do so until that perfect day when they know all things and become as he is. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I have entitled my remarks, The Last Words of Moroni. Last week we passed one of the most significant anniversaries recognized by our Church. It marked the visitation of the angel Moroni to the Prophet Joseph Smith, preliminary to the restoration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day. Moroni came back from the dead, a resurrected man. He had lived in America some 1,500 years ago and was the sole survivor of his people in a series of tragic battles which took many lives. He had witnessed the destruction of his whole nation, including his own family. In bitter vengeance, their enemies had vowed their complete annihilation 
and now this threat was accomplished. Moroni's father was commander of the armies of this ancient people known as the Nephites. His name was Mormon. The war of which we speak took place here in America some 400 years after Christ. As the fighting neared its end, Mormon gathered the remnant of his forces about a hill which they called Camorra, located in what is now the western part of the state of New York. Their enemies, known as Lamanites, came against them on this hill, and of that dreadful event, Mormon wrote, My people with their wives and their children did behold the armies of the Lamanites marching toward them, and with that awful fear of death which fills the breasts of all the wicked did wait to receive them. Every soul was filled with terror, and it came to pass that they did fall upon my people with the sword and with the bow and with the arrow and with the axe and with all manner of weapons of war. And it came to pass that my men were hewn down, even my ten thousand who were with me, and I fell wounded in the midst." Then he spoke of other leaders serving with him in the Nephite army, all of whom had fallen with the forces under their command. He accounted for about a quarter of a million Nephites killed in that final encounter at Camorra. He mourned over this great loss and wrote, My soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people. And I cried, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if you had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, Ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how could ye have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. And then he went on to say, The day cometh that ye must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged according to your works. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. But behold, ye are gone, and the Father, yea, the eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he doeth with you according to his justice and mercy. Why were the Nephites destroyed? As he wrote his faithful words, he said again that his people were annihilated because they loved wickedness, rejected the counsel of God, and gave themselves over to seeking wealth and corruption. This made up the deadly concoction 
which brought about their extinction. Had not the Lord said to them, as he says to us now, that America is a choice land and that those who live here must obey God or be swept off? And had he not kept his word to those rebellious Nephites now totally wiped out? So it is that today's archaeologists find the ruins which are the silent witnesses to the greatness that once was ancient America. In closing his record, and knowing that it would come to us, Moroni pleaded with us, the modern inhabitants of this land, to escape the kind of tragic end which had obliterated his people. Behold, I speak to you as if you were present, and yet ye are not, he said. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. I know that ye walk in the pride of your hearts. Ye do love money, your substance, and fine apparel. In prophecy also he spoke of the tragic moral pollutions which would engulf many modern Americans. He asked why we are so foolish as to revel in sin, why we would reject the Christ and thereby invite disaster. Why are ye ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ, he asked, speaking to modern America, knowing full well that many might profess to believe in him and yet refuse to do his works. It is by engaging in his works that we truly take his name upon us. It is not through lip service. Moroni knew that faith without works is dead, and so likewise should we. He made it clear that advance warning is given to us who live today through the very book which he and his father had written and which he was now about to bury in Camorah. It would be published in our day to give us that warning. Describing our day, he said that the book would come forth when millions deny the power of God, when the world would be in turmoil with earthquakes, violent storms, wars, and rumors of wars in many places. He said it would be in a time of great pollution. Isn't it interesting that he would speak of great pollution on the earth? Does it remind you of the claims of our modern ecologists? He said also that it would be in a time of extensive crime, of murders, robberies, lies, deceptions, and immorality. Think of those words in terms of today's cover-ups, bribes, thievings, embezzlements, and other fraudulent practices among hosts of individuals, but also in business and in government. Hasn't dishonesty almost become a way of life with many people? Think, too, of the epidemic of social diseases, sweeping the nations in the wake of their vast immorality. What frightful pollutions these are. Before his death, Mormon wrote that his record, of course, would be a warning to those he called Gentiles, but that it would be a blessing to the Lamanites. Also, he said that it would come with a special message to the Jews. For them it was published, he said, that they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the Father may bring about through his most beloved his great and eternal purpose in restoring the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of this covenant. 
Consider the current significance of that scripture. May I pause a moment and re-read that? He said that the Book of Mormon was published that the Jews may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but also that the Father may bring about through his most beloved his great and eternal purpose in restoring the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant. What a mighty significance to that scripture. Mormon then wrote directly to us as modern Americans who now occupy this promised land and said, How can ye stand before the power of God, except ye shall repent and turn from your evil ways? Know ye not that ye are in the hands of God? Know ye not that he hath all power, and at his great command the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll? Therefore repent ye, and humble yourselves before him, lest he shall come out in justice against you. Can we ignore such a warning directed specifically to this generation? Moroni joined his father with this. Who can stand against the works of the Lord? Who can deny his sayings? Who will rise up against the almighty power of the Lord? Who will despise the works of the Lord? Who will despise the children of Christ? Behold, all ye who are despisers of the works of the Lord, ye shall perish. It should be remembered that these men wrote to us out of the desperation of the event they were passing through as the Nephites were being wiped off the face of the earth. They knew that we live here now under the same conditions that were given to them. As Moroni wrote his last testimony, He realized how important his book is to our generation. He asked that we read it and believe it. So he pleaded, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. These were among his very last words. His pen had already inscribed this frightening but divine warning about America. This is a choice land above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. He gave us the lesson of the annihilation of the Nephites as a case in point. He wrote similarly of the tragedy of the Jaredites. It was another case in point. Do we realize that this same kind of destruction can come upon us and for the same reason? So this is the message of Moroni. He came back from the dead to deliver it in these modern times. His people were Americans too. His words constituted a people-to-people message, ancient Americans speaking to modern Americans. Theirs was the voice of bitter experience seeking to persuade us to avoid the dreadful conditions which engulfed them. 
Moroni announced that he will face us on Judgment Day in defense of his words. This he will do together with his book. For out of the books we shall be judged, and the Book of Mormon is one of those books. We now have it in our hands. It is published to the world. It carries God's message to all. It gives full and fair warning to this generation, and the warning is true. Read it. Believe it. Pray over it. Obey its counsels. It can lead us unerringly to Christ. The last words of Moroni. Dare we forget them? God grant that we never will. I pray in Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, I ask for your faith and prayers that the Lord's Spirit might touch our hearts as together we consider an item vital to our happiness here and hereafter. One of the greatest needs of mankind generally, and of all of us individually, is to have more and stronger faith in our Creator. To know that He is literally our Father and that He is kind and just and understands us and knows our needs is one of the greatest treasures we can possess. This treasure is obtained by faith, strong faith. Now, it may seem easy to have faith in God when things are going well, but the law of growth requires constant effort and stretching. Thus, in order to have our faith strengthened, it must be stretched and tried and tested. One of the areas of testing that comes to many of us is when something occurs over which we apparently have little or no control and which to us seems unfair. For example, I have always been moved as I have seen those who are required to operate on less than their full faculties. I, along with some of you, have asked the question, why? On many occasions when an accident has occurred or a terrible illness or an untimely death or when a mentally retarded or physically handicapped child has been born or some other seemingly difficult-to-explain situation has taken place, people have come to me and to others wanting reassurance. I, along with you, have taken great consolation in the scriptures as they tell us that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without our Father knowing. We believe the scriptures, but when it happens to our loved one or to our friend, the question of why still rings. I do not have all the answers, but hopefully the following experience, which happened several years ago, may be helpful to some who are still battling the question of why. On a small Pacific island, an infant girl was born to a faithful family. They called her Felila. There was happiness and joy as this grateful spirit made her debut into mortal life, but soon there were problems. Her head was abnormally large. The doctors diagnosed it as hydroencephalitis. The questions of brain damage, of normalcy, of other problems all raised their haunting heads. After much fasting and prayer, the elders' quorum president approached the branch president, who in turn talked with the district president, who, after adequate checking, came to me as the mission president to see if there were some additional help available. The medical authorities were consulted, and it was determined that there was little, if anything, they could do locally. Letters were written, information was sent back and forth, x-rays were taken. There was so much to do, these x-rays had to be analyzed, so many questions to be answered, so many pieces to fit together. Finally, after exasperatingly long delays, things began to fall into place. A family here in Salt Lake agreed to accept full responsibility for the infant, even if it meant years of outpatient care. The doctors agreed on the possibility of her eventual recovery, 
The hospital accepted the case on a service basis. Funds were raised for her airfare. Some local travelers arranged their schedules to bring her right to the hospital. But there were other problems, visas, health certificates, reservations, passports. All during these trying days, the family, the elders' quorum, and even the whole branch continued to fast and pray. The time of departure of the infrequent plane grew near. One morning, amidst myriads of other pressing matters, I had a strong impression that I must take the time now and put forth the extra effort required to get everything done so she could go. I got on the overseas telephone. The consulate finally agreed to issue a visa. The airlines made a special reservation. The passport people agreed to waive the normal regulations. Others gave that extra effort and cooperation, and soon all was in order. Normally, I would have sent someone to bring the family in to sign the final papers, but again, I felt strongly impressed that I should personally go and see the branch president. I located him in the early afternoon near the school where he was teaching. He was standing alone outside as though he were waiting for me. Excitedly, I ran up to him. Guess what? It's all set. Miraculously, everything has worked out, and Felila can leave tomorrow. Please get word to the family immediately. His calm, penetrating gaze quelled my exuberance. It's true, I said. I know it's been long, and there have been lots of disappointments, but she really is going now. What's, what's the matter? His steady gaze seemed to penetrate my very soul. Then softly in his liquid native tongue, he informed me that when all the preparations had been made, when the hearts of so many had been stretched in service, when the goal of unity and selflessness had been achieved in those many hearts, when all had made the final commitment of others above self, at the height of all this activity that very morning, little Felila had quietly and unobtrusively slipped away, gone to that better care which so many had fasted and prayed and worked so long and hard for her to receive. Gone. This morning? But all that work, all that time, all that fasting and praying and those strong feelings— Gone? No. Without once shifting his gaze, he, having more faith than me, offered a few words of truth and encouragement, then quietly turned and rejoined his class. And I was left alone, or so it seemed. I moved slowly and heavily down that dusty trail. Why? Why? After all that work, and that strong faith of so many in those impressions. Why? I sensed the brightness of the sun and felt the warmth of the breeze as it lazily tossed the palm leaves and slowly shifted the silent clouds against the clear blue sky. A feeling came over me. I realized that the earth was beautiful, that life went on and was eternal. And while I cannot describe fully what happened next, part of the experience is proper to relate— the best explanation is contained in the phrase, I was overcome by the Spirit. It was as though one took me by the hand and led me to a high place and stood by me and said, Look. And I looked and beheld such beauty and magnificence as man cannot conceive. And I heard a voice, such a tender, compassionate voice, yet so unmistakably powerful that all nature stood still and listened and obeyed. Come home, Felila, 
my daughter. Come home to the care your loved ones have sought for you. I have heard their prayers and have known their fasting and love for you, and I answer, Come home, my daughter. You have finished your mission in life. Hearts have been softened. Souls have been stretched. Faith has been increased. Come home now, Felila. He knew her. He knew her name. He knew all about her and about all those others. How perfect our Father's love. He had heard the prayers. He had done what was best. He knew everything. Which thing, though I believed, I never had supposed. In some marvelous way, which is beyond our mortal comprehension, he knows and understands all things. My questions as to why, as to justice and reasons, were all at that moment completely swept away. They were so irrelevant, my questioning so totally out of place, like one trying to dig the Grand Canyon with a teaspoon. Oh, how we must remember the words of Jacob as he said, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. Seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. I testify that there is complete and total justice in eternity. God's dealings with man have no tinge of partiality or of capriciousness or of anything less than complete consistency and balance and perfectness. Some say, but it has been years. We have fasted and prayed so long and so hard. What does the Lord expect? There may be many answers. I give only one. That is, he expects more. And it will be for your eternal benefit and blessing. That I know. As we begin to comprehend eternity, we gain a whole new catalog of values. To you who have the responsibility and the privilege and the opportunity of caring for others, may you, through those long hours and days and years, ever know as I know that the Lord understands. Do not be discouraged. Do not attempt to counsel the Lord. He determines, not you. He knows hearts and souls and needs. He measures intents and knows spirits. Caring is all-important the intensity, the duration, the amount, the quality, the extent. For in God's wisdom, caring creates faith. Oh, may we all have a little Felila in our lives, and there are so many, the retarded, the infirm, those needing special help both spiritually and physically, the aged, the infants, all these to soften our hearts in love, to stretch our souls in tenderness, to confirm our worth in caring for others, and above all, to strengthen our faith in him who knows all, even him who in caring totally gave his all, and in giving his all lives forever, and in living forever rules eternally, and in ruling eternally cares omnipotently, whose coming and going is one eternal round, I pray in his name, even the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.